May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In the early 1980s, my family moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. During the time we lived there, my father managed facilities that manufactured and sold masonry construction materials in Baton Rouge and New Orleans. As with most jobs, his work brought with it many challenges and frustrations that had to be worked out each day. Dad supervised multiple people at each location, monitored two production operations, and had sales responsibilities for commercial and residential customers in the region. Add to the pressures that resulted from depressed construction activities in the two markets at the time, and it made for a potentially high-stress environment with so many things that could cause aggravation and worry for everyone who worked there. There were plenty of times frustrations would boil over and somebody in the office would rant, yell, or otherwise stress out for a while about whatever seemingly overwhelming problem had occurred. My father, however, was not someone who reacted to stressful situations in this way. If you were looking for an example of a non-anxious presence, my father was the epitome of what a non-anxious presence looks like. When faced with a problem or a crisis, what always characterized his response was a confidence and certainty that somehow the issue could be resolved or overcome. And many times he was the one who figured out a good way to get out of the problem, a way to get through the crisis. You would think that dad's tendency to stay calm and steady in times of trouble would be a trait that would be appreciated by the people around him. But that was not always the case. There was a woman named Barbara who was the dispatcher and office manager in the Baton Rouge location, and she just couldn't understand how my father could say, stay so steady and relaxed in situations that obviously called for a more visibly urgent response. I think she was partially convinced that his lack of a dramatic reaction to what most people saw as an emergency meant that he just wasn't paying attention. And she was partially aggravated because his way of responding to problems was very different from hers. One day, Barbara tried to catch him off guard and get him to react in a frustrated, angry way by making up a fictional work crisis. Something she was sure had all of the elements necessary to set him off. Instead, true to form, Dad responded calmly as he went to work thinking about ways to fix the imaginary problem. Until Barbara admitted that the whole scenario was only a trick, fabricated to elicit a response from Dad that she didn't get. She eventually came to understand that just because he didn't show the kind of active anxiety and emotion she expected of someone faced with a crisis, that didn't mean he didn't notice or wasn't concerned about what was happening. His doing something just looked different from what she thought it ought to look like. In the end, everyone in the office had a good laugh about the attempted trick gone wrong and my very competitive father got satisfaction from winning a game he didn't even know he was playing. 
How often do we make incorrect or incomplete assumptions about other people's motives or their level of concern and engagement? As we base our assumptions primarily on our personally defined expectations of what appropriate or acceptable responses are. Often being disappointed and frustrated when what we see doesn't match up with these expectations. How often can this happen in our lives of faith and in our prayers? Are we disappointed and discouraged when we pray earnest, heartfelt prayers and anticipate seeing the results of God's working in the world in specific expected ways, but instead feel like God ignores or is unconcerned with our needs and our hopes because what we pray for doesn't happen? Are we so focused on getting the particular results we want that we miss seeing the unexpected ways that gifts and wonders are there that are signs of God's caring, active presence in the world and in all of God's creation? At last Sunday services, as I heard Luke's telling of Jesus' visit with Martha and Mary, something that Martha says to Jesus caught my attention. As frustrated, distracted, Martha loses her patience with her sister Mary, who is doing nothing to help prepare for their guests. Martha seems frustrated and disappointed with Jesus, too. She says to Jesus, Lord, do you not care? Martha is certain that Mary is doing wrong. Martha has identified what needs to happen to set things right. And it sounds like Martha has expected Jesus to act to fix it, but instead feels like he doesn't think her troubles matter. Lord, do you not care? Martha's accusation sounds very similar to one found in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus and his disciples are in a boat sailing across rough waters at night. The ship is being tossed, water is filling the boat, and the disciples are fearful for their lives, all the while Jesus sleeps peacefully. The disciples finally wake Jesus up and say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? Jesus' followers see Jesus apparently doing nothing as a sign that it doesn't matter to him whether they live or die in the rough waters. In the passage from Genesis this morning, we hear Abraham push back against God's plans for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the people who live there. Abraham's words may be deferential. Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? But underlying Abraham's persistent questioning and deal-making with God seems to be the recurring question, Lord, do you not care about the lives of the innocent people who will be caught up in this destruction? Do you not care? I don't know about you, but I can certainly relate to the frustration, doubt, and disappointment that permeates these questions. There have certainly been many times in my life when I have prayed for the physical healing of myself or people I love, 
for the resolution of a difficult situation causing stress and worry, for the end of danger and violence that harms so many people in so many places. I've prayed these prayers, but often have felt like nothing happens, at least nothing that I notice. It's not much of a stretch to say that at these times I want to get God's attention and ask, don't you care? Can't you see that everything is terrible? Why don't you do something to fix it? The comfort in this to me is how the holy response to these questions, these veiled and not so veiled accusations isn't, how dare you question me? Or since your faith is weak, you're on your own. But instead, God responds favorably to what Abraham promised proposes, ready to extend grace and mercy each time Abraham gives God less and less reason to do so. Jesus acknowledges Martha's distraction and worry and offers her a better way. And the waves that are tossing around the disciples' ship, Jesus calms before pointing the disciples' attention back to the faith that can help them weather strong storms. The gospel lesson this morning begins with Jesus praying. After he finishes his prayers, his disciples come to Jesus and ask him to teach them to pray. Now, I'm certain the disciples already have a prayer life, ways that they have been taught to pray as children and have continued as they've grown into adulthood. But something about Jesus has stirred up in the disciples a desire to learn to pray in a different way. They might have noticed how often Jesus prays. They might think he has extra special words or techniques to share with them for more effective prayer. The disciples may see in Jesus a kind of peace that they don't recognize, but they'd like to know more about. Regardless of what has prompted their request, they might be surprised by Jesus' answer. The prayer Jesus gives his followers is simple. Acknowledge and honor God. Request sustenance for today. Ask for forgiveness and promise to forgive others. And call for God's protection. This is the basis for the Lord's Prayer that we pray at every corporate worship service and is one of the first prayers just about every Christian learns when they are taught how to pray. Jesus follows up this prayer with a story that can be problematic when we bring expectations that influence what we take from Jesus' words, causing us to hear promises that aren't there. I would guess that many of us listening to this reading from Luke have heard it as Jesus telling his disciples that whatever they ask for, they will get. Or as one of my favorite Christian essayists, Debbie Thomas, describes it, God as a cosmic gumball machine into which we insert prayers like so many shiny quarters. But the only, and I use that term loosely, the only specific promise made about what is given when we pray is that those who ask will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.
when we have our hearts and our minds set on getting whatever specific, tangible result we want as we pray, it might be a letdown to be offered only the Holy Spirit. But this is no small promise. This is no consolation prize. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift of God's own self. God's sustaining, strengthening presence with us in all that we face. So when we pray, may we pray as Jesus teaches us to pray, with simplicity, faithfulness, and persistence. And may we also remember the bold, honest questioning of Abraham, Martha, and the disciples as we come to God with our hurts and our doubts, when all we can do is lament, Lord, do you not care? And may we truly rejoice in receiving the gift that God is always ready to give, the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open for you. May it be so. Amen.